just past 7 o'clock. Another big one on tap for you tonight. It's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo here with you as well. And Ira, not a good month if you're a starting QB, whether it's NFL or college. I don't think I can ever remember so many backups being thrust into the position in the first month of football. And now, um, you know, as of yesterday, we're going to see uh, not only the Steelers lose their quarterback for the season, but the Saints lose Drew Brees for uh, six weeks, what could be more. It's a really weird start to the NFL season. Well, I mean, you have two first ballot Hall of Fame quarterbacks uh, leading elite teams that are now effectively with Breeze probably out for at least eight games and Ben's season is over. So in and in a time when we're protecting the quarterbacks and they're saying, well, this is going to happen and quarterbacks can play until they're 42, 43 mm -hmm. years old to see injuries like this. Because remember, you also had Andrew Luck who had to retire. Nick Foles uh, broke, his clavicle. broke his clavicle. So you have four quarterbacks who are leading four teams that were people expected to go to the playoffs now out. And then you've got Sam Darnold, who's apparently in middle school and came down with mono. I haven't heard of many adults uh, picking that up. But just a strange start to the season. Did you happen to see Gardner Minshew's outfit <laughs> getting ready for the game? That was uh, the talk of social media and and uh, he didn't really back that up. A big guest coming on tonight, and this is someone that you love. His name is John Bacon. Tell us about him. He's a great writer. He is the premier writer about Michigan football. So he not only well, – the most amazing thing about him is that he grew up with Jim Harbaugh, and they mm -hmm. would compete against each other in sports. So if there's anybody who knows anything about Jim Harbaugh, it's John Bacon. He's also a professor at the University of Michigan. But his, his latest book, Overtime, I've been reading, and I'll tell – I've – gone to 207 Penn State football games, you read the book over time, I might actually become a Michigan fan <laughs> over Penn State. If I keep reading this book, I'm almost done with the book. I'm afraid to keep reading it because I might be trying to have to trade all my Penn State merchandise in. And that's going to happen at 7.15 tonight on Iron Sports. Ira, where have you been? What a week. So I went on, I flew up with my parents to the mm -hmm. Penn State pit game and then we went to that game on Saturday and then on Sunday we all went to the Seahawks Steeler game. So you had a busy weekend. It's you, very, you just got off a plane. You just came back, flew up Friday, <laughs> and flew back. It's not Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, Pittsburgh to South Florida, there's not many flights. So you have to the flew Spirit and get landed at 5 o'clock, and I'm here at 7 o'clock for the show. We, we respect the hustle. I definitely do. Um, okay, we've got so much to talk about. Let's get right into it. Um, let's talk about the Steelers game. And this one, I'm sure, didn't get the result that you guys planned on. And, of course, you know, Big Ben going down didn't help that. I was really ready to talk about the game and how the Steelers, I was waiting for them to make that next step from the Patriot game and, and come up and, 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 and perform at a higher level, especially on defense. And, and Seattle had only played two games at Heinz Field and lost a combined score of 45 to nothing. Crazy. And the Steelers against the NFC West te NFC teams really at, at Heinz is 29-6-1. It's a, a huge home field advantage. But they, more than just kick away the Steelers offense of what happened, the Steelers defense again, who which... They made changes, wholesale changes to this defense, adding in uh, Mark Barron, the, who played for the Rams in the Super Bowl, uh, drafted Devin Bush the, at the 10th pick from Michigan, uh, brought, brought Steve Nelson at quarterback, all these changes. Uh, Russell Wilson's really good. And yeah. I, this is, besides the Super Bowl, this is the only second time I've seen him play live. And you can just see, I mean, he is an elite Elite at the Brady level, elite type of quarterback. He was 29 to 35, 300 yards, three touchdowns, six carries, 22 yards, but he totally understands 
what he has to do out there on the in the field. And and the Steelers could not stop it. When he needed the first down, he got the first down. He is accurate. He doesn't have these great wide receivers that are running everywhere, but he know his passes are pinpoint. He runs when he has to run and he's super smart. Well, well that's what I was gonna say, what you just, you know, mentioned about his receivers. Not only the receivers, he's never had a top 15 offensive line either they put nothing around russell wilson and all he does is win it really is amazing he's you know you talked about two surefire hall of famers earlier which ben and breeze definitely are but i think russell wilson's knocking on the door of the hall of fame too already and he's still probably got another 10 years um to do this it's just crazy how effective he is tell us about the game itself uh I've been to a Steelers game before, and it's a ton of fun, especially the tailgating and the whole atmosphere. I think the I think the atmosphere. The, the I think that was it for the season because the weather was perfect. You had perfect weather, everyone in black and gold. But the fans weren't in the stands. Like when the the Patriot game, I said the week before, uh, an hour before the game, everybody's in the stands. It's one of these late arriving Dodger type crowds where the game's about to start, and then they're suddenly all there. But it was it was great. I, the fans wanted to embrace this team. They there's I did not see one. I saw more. I didn't see any Antonio Brown shirts. Nobody. Really? I mean, people wear Cordell Store jerseys. <laughs> I mean, players that have been booed out of Pittsburgh. They're wearing all the Tommy Maddox. Uh, but there was no Antonio Brown. There was no Le'Veon Bell. None of those jerseys, which mm-hmm. I was very surprised. I thought I'd see like one or two of them that somebody would break out. But but I didn't see any of those. And the Steelers got out to a lead. Uh, they uh, Seattle fumbled. Mark Barron recovered, and the Steelers went up and were able to to, to score early. At seven nothing, uh, but then with two minutes to go in the in the in the first half, Ben was driving the team down for a field goal, and they kicked the field goal. But he he threw the ball and he was holding his arm. But it was like one of those injuries. I was there at Oakland when he got hurt. And at the end of that guy, and he would just, it's not surprising that he just runs the locker room. And people thought, well, it was very hot. So maybe he was getting the fluids because there was two minutes to go and you're figuring the half would end up. And Ben was just in the locker room getting fluids. There was no indication. Like there was this, it wasn't, he was hurt. He was injuries, trainers on the field. I mean, you could see in the television replays that he was hurt, but in the stadium, nobody knew why Ben was on the sideline, and everyone assumed he just went in the locker room. And the same thing at that Oakland game last year when he went in the locker room for a shoulder, and then the MRI had to look. It was back and forth what about with the MRI with his ribs, mm-hmm. and then he came back, and then he could have, then he ended up playing at the end. So we were like waiting. Well, he'll probably come back in the second half and play. And but it's interesting. So. They haven't announced what happened. But then in the second half, when he came out, he's standing on the sidelines. Now, there was no ice on his, sh- on his elbow. They said an elbow injury. He's questionable return. But nobody was doing He didn't have a headset on. Mm-hmm. But he still had his uniform on. But his he had nothing on his elbow. So I said to everyone around me, I'm like, he's either going to come back or he's really hurt. Like, if they're not pay- trying to get him to come back in the game, this could be a serious, serious injury. But he wasn't, like, in pain, it didn't seem like. But he was not really communicating with the Steelers at all. He wasn't talking to Mason Rudolph. Yeah. The only thing he said to Tomlin was when they were going for a touchdown at the end of the, the second half to, to go for two. I heard him. I, you just see go for two, put two up. Meaning, remember, you're going to have to go for two maybe. Uh, besides that, he I, and you're just like, is he going to come back in? Not come back in. It was just weird. And it's ironic that Terry Bradshaw, I remember when I watched this game, December 11th, 1983 in Shea Stadium. That's when he threw and got hurt in that game. I was I remember what friends I was at that house with, <laughs> and that was the last game that Terry Bradshaw ever played. And I listened, went back on the tape, and he said he knew when he threw the pass that he hurt his elbow, that his career was over. He said he never experienced pain like that. He said he'd been through everything, and he knew at that point. So hopefully that we don't, still don't know what the injury is. We still, we don't know what injury or what, but we just know he's going to have surgery on his elbow, and they, well, it could be Tommy John surgery or whatever. I mean, hopefully this is not going to end Ben's career, but it is ironic that it's the same thing that – 
that ruined that ended Terry Bradshaw's career. You know, it's interesting you bring up. You know, you were at the stadium, so it's it's difficult for you to know what's going on. Of course, on TV, I read they didn't know either, and it was kind of just these announcers just throwing out um, you know theories on why Big Ben was like you said standing there but not really receiving treatment. So it was kind of a shock for everybody. So what happened in the game after they bring in Mason Rudolph? I believe this is Rudolph's third year with the team. Second year, with second year was drafted last year. Right here, and they and they had just traded Josh Dobbs, who is someone who had <laughs> three been days there. ago. He had been there in three years, so they felt they draft they traded him to Jacksonville. So they really have only Mason Rudolph, uh, and Mason Rudolph's from Oklahoma State. He was drafted in the third round. People thought he was a first round talent. The only benefit the Steelers had is he's been in the system. He's not just a rookie, and he mm-hmm. stepped in. And people are high on him. They think he's played great. And remember when they drafted Mason Rudolph, Ben was against it. Ben saying, "Stop wasting draft picks on quarterbacks. I'm, I'm not gonna going be a anywhere. Quarterback. <laughs> You're wasting a pick. All that same thing." What Tom Brady said about drafting quarterbacks, uh, but he came in. He did. He did okay. He was 12 for 19, 112 yards, two touchdowns. But again, the Steeler defense was just kept giving up touchdowns to uh, to Russell Wilson. It was 21-19 with 11s to go. Tomlin, they, the Steelers scored, and Tomlin went for two, but didn't get it. But the Steelers went down, and they scored again. Um, they scored a touchdown on three straight drives, uh, and the Steeler defense just could not stop them at all. And then the key play was there was a they went down to make that 28 or the score where they scored 28. They actually challenged a pass interference. It was one of the first successful challenges where they didn't they didn't call pass interference. Interference mm-hmm. on Troll Edmonds on Lockett, and then they looked at it, looked at it, and then they called the pass interference, and then they were it was so the call was overturned, and they went down and scored. But then the Steelers had their had their chance to go. They, they it would look like with five minutes to go, the game was over. Everybody left the stadium. But then the uh, Seahawks fumbled the ball. And the Steelers came back, made it 28-26. They failed on the two-point conversion. Seahawks get the ball with 5.34 to go. They ran 12 plays to end the game. So that, I mean, that we mm-hmm. talked about the good defense at the end of the game is your best offense. The fact is, the Steelers never had a chance for that last-second drive. They went third and 16 on the Steelers 48. He scrambled for 15 yards, got a fourth down, and then they were and then they, they ran and got a first down on fourth down. But that's what the Seahawks are just great at ending these games, winning those games, and holding out uh, to hold on for the win. It's 7-15. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, just moments away from John Bacon, author of Overtime, going to be joining us here on Iron Sports. going to be a great interview. Before that, though, Ira, one of the things that I've seen is that the run game looks pedestrian. And this was a team last year that, you know, you guys have a great offensive line. James Conner proved he could be a starter in this league. The defense is having issues. Without Big Ben in, it's obviously going to be some struggles. But why do you think James Conner and, you know, the, the ground game hasn't been able to take off for the Steelers? No, the Steelers run. Conner then gets hurt. Yeah. So, I mean, the best, uh, Benny Bell uh, from uh, Kentucky, the rookie, had the longest run. But Conner wasn't running well. Uh, Jalen Samuels, his backup, wasn't running well either. Uh, it, I don't know. The offensive line is healthy. Yeah. Everyone thought they were going to be great this year. It just hasn't. It hasn't clicked. And uh, and, and maybe the teams they're playing, and then Ben going down caused problems. But and you know that what happened is, is that Seattle, when they saw Mason Rudolph was in the game, that they would gonna they were they were going to stack the box, stop the run, and dare Mason to throw the ball. Uh, but the Steelers receivers. This is the same thing that happened with the Patriots, and this is Juju's problem too a little bit. Ben, the 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 greatness of Antonio Brown is when the play broke down. It's like school schoolyard football. He knows and runs <laughs> like if you're in trouble and Ben likes to work around, he'll get open. He'll find a spot. Mm-hmm. He's going to keep moving. The Steelers run to their spots 
and stop. And, the, and then it's easy for the it defenders. It was something Antonio say, Brown was there. great at. Yeah, and, and Antonio Brown just would run all around the field if Ben would scramble. So as much as there was friction between the two of them, and, and now Antonio's going to be in a situation where Tom Brady doesn't want that. But he actually, the more I look at the Patriots, he, there might be chances where Brady does extend some plays, mm-hmm. and Antonio's going to be the type of guy that's going to get open for him, and he's going to know he's gonna, because he doesn't stop moving. Whereas it looked like every other Steeler, all the Steeler wide receivers just stop and don't move. He had a great nose for finding an open spot in the secondary, and that uh, shows why he's been so good. Plenty more to talk about in the NFL. We'll do that in just a moment. But first, it's time to bring in John Bacon. He's the author, author of Overtime, Jim Harbaugh, and the Michigan Wolverines at the crossroads of college football. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, first and foremost, Ira is 250 pages into Overtime, and he's the biggest Penn State fan I know, and he's ready to switch over to Michigan Alliance <laughs> to be a Michigan <laughs> fan because of how great your book is. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very kind, of course. Uh, a couple books ago, I did uh, Fourth and Long about the Penn State 12, 2012 season mainly uh, with Bill O'Brien and that crowd inside the locker room for that one. That was fantastic. So uh, I have also a ton of respect for Penn State, so perhaps we'll uh, swap down the road. Who knows? <laughs> Go ahead, I. What do you got? Well, John, um, you're, first of all, one of the greatest writers. I mean, how you – are talking about Michigan football, and and I, I joke about it that I'm the biggest Penn State fan. But you get, I totally believe, totally into everything that Michigan has, and and it, it's just it's this is a great read. Your writing style is so, I mean, it just it just the words just flow off the page, and I just love reading it. It's a it's a tremendous book, and you and you examine in overtime last year's season. But I guess the question I want to ask you that is on the mind of everyone is that from reading your book. And you talk about Harbaugh and about how when he's nine years old, he's on the practice fields with Bo Schembechler because his dad was a coach there, about how he would transfer it out and had to, to go to Palo Alto. And as an 11th and 12th grader, he told everyone, I'm going to be the quarterback in Michigan. Everyone said, no chance you're going to be the quarterback in Michigan. And then you see that he then takes Michigan to the, to the number two ranking in the country. They beat Ohio State twice. You see his passion for Michigan. It's all about Michigan. Even when he was at Stanford, he talked about Michigan. I can't ever see him ever leaving Michigan for any other job. And I think Michigan has their guy. Like, as much as we outside Michigan want to talk about Harbaugh's in trouble, Harbaugh's in trouble, I read your book, I'm like, he's never going to leave, and they're never going to get rid of him. So what am I, where am I wrong on my thinking? I think you're probably right. It's hard to predict the future, of course, and I try not to do that in this case. But, uh, look, his parents were living in Milwaukee. He had, his dad, Jack, did just finished up as the uh, associate AD of Marquette. And his sons, of course, live in Ann Arbor. And, uh, pardon my honky voice. Uh, Ann Arbor and, um, geez, oh, Pete. Ann Arbor and, uh, and Baltimore with uh, John Harbaugh, of course, coaching the Ravens. And, his, uh, and their daughter uh, is married to uh, the Georgia basketball course, of course, Tom Crean. So you can move to Ann Arbor or Athens, Georgia or Baltimore. They moved to Ann Arbor. And they moved in Jim's backyard where they bought a house. So uh, that right there is a pretty good sign that Grandma and Grandpa plan on being around for a while. Uh, so I think they're going to be around for a while as well. And he, he is not on the hot seat in the typical fashion. The AD, AD gets the only vote. The vote is one to nothing. Jim's got it. Ward Manuel is not going to blink on that one, I don't think. The problem, of course, is that the national press and others are calling him on the hot seat. So that's probably annoying. Uh, about 10 or 15% of Michigan fans are grumbling about Ohio State because Jim has owned four against them, and Michigan is 2-16 and 16 this century, which is a problem. Uh, but I don't see Jim leaving anytime soon. I really don't. I mean, it's when you, when you 
describe Harbaugh and how competitive he is. And you grew up playing sports with him. He, in terms of you were in hockey and played all the sports against him, and you said he's the most competitive person you've ever seen. And the, the story in the book about how he was hurt his sophomore year, and they said that his arm was broken, and, and it was and he didn't know that. He was in the hospital, and Bo Schembechler comes in and says, your arm is broken, you're done for the season, you're done for uh, the bowl game, you might miss spring practice, but you still gotta get a 3.0 because you have a lot of time on your hand. And he walks out of the room, and, and, and Harbaugh says, Coach, don't forget about me. I mean, it's just like, this is like out of Rudy. And I mean, it's like Jim Harbaugh is Rudy, but he's actually the star quarterback on the team, and now he's the coach of the team. It is what a great story. Well, appreciate that, Ira. You read it very carefully. I appreciate that. What I was surprised to learn, because I grew up, again, playing baseball against him and hockey with him one season. And one of us, Ira, was a great athlete, but I won't tell you who. <laughs> <laughs> That's towards the back. How about that? But uh, what surprised me talking to John Harbaugh at length, about two, three hours for our interview, is that I always thought Jim was the golden boy. Most of us did, you know, the star athlete and so on. As John points out, he was usually the underdog. Um, at Starting with Palo Alto in 11th grade, he gets out there. They've already got a quarterback, a very popular guy, and Jim's the backup, and he's got to beat this guy and win the team over, and he does it. Uh, but that was kind of hard. At Michigan, he was recruited, recruited at the last minute. Seems like we lost uh, John there. Probably some phone issues. We'll get him back up uh, in just a minute. Um, this is a, He's an extremely interesting guy, obviously. And by the way, um, while we get John back up, it, uh, you can check out him on Twitter at John U. Bacon. And also his website is JohnUBacon.com. I think we have him back on the line. Johnny there? No, still coming up. <clears throat> Ira, um, this is fascinating stuff to me. And the Harbaugh's do seem like... They're like one of these families that's in, like sports is ingrained in them. So who better to be discussing this than someone who literally grew up with them and, and you know would know that kind of thing inside and out? This is a fantastic insight that you couldn't get anywhere else. Well, he was just mentioning about John Harbaugh. Last year, I went to the Ravens Steeler game in Baltimore, and I was at that game. And you walk out, and everyone's saying Flacco's gone. Harbaugh's out the door, too. It's over. The whole Raven thing. And now we look at who's the hottest team in, in the NFL, who's the most innovative, to then only a few games later, he, gets, he, he benches Flacco, brings in Lamar Jackson, who no one thought was going to do anything. And now Lamar Jackson has had the two—first of all, he leads in the playoffs last year. Came back, they, and then now Lamar Jackson has had two of the best starts of, of the season, and the Ravens look like this great hot team, and and that's the fight the Harbaugh's have. I mean, they just the fact that John Harbaugh, who was saying, oh, he's going to be out of the job, his time has run its course, he was able to do that. We do uh, have John back on the line here. John, sorry about that little technical difficulties, um, but we have you back, I, I assume. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sorry about the honking voice, but uh, we'll we'll play her and get through that too. So. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, back to the, uh, the Harbaugh as an athlete. That I never saw him as an underdog, but John correctly points out that almost everywhere he went, he was not the first guy. So including Chicago and Dick, of course, had McMahon, and Tom Zack didn't want him, but he got the job eventually, and likewise Indianapolis. So Jim has always been fighting through uh, long odds. I was shocked to learn in this, in this process. Uh, Eastern Michigan University, which is the graveyard of coaches, nobody ever coaches after they coach there. They fail always. Uh, Harbaugh could not even get an interview for that job uh, in 2004. So what does that tell you? Wow, that's 
the one thing you mentioned about the book is that just the whole Michigan attitude and the fact that Harbaugh embraced it. And it's more like I see it saw it with Penn State with Paterno. It's it's that we are going that academics is not we're just lip service. Like it's important. And when he was at Stanford, he actually criticized Michigan because so many people were taking general studies classes and people in Michigan didn't like that and, and Brady Hoke didn't didn't like that criticism that was coming his way. But the fact is is that he is and then he takes the team to Paris, takes it to Rome, and, and the academics is just he it's not just he wants to get the kids through it is imperative that he pre and he presses academics and and maybe people don't like Michigan because they think well we're better than everyone else but but he's going to go down like that by pushing academics and that's something to be uh, celebrated yeah I agree and uh, yeah it's certainly some positive stuff for Michigan in there but what's in there is positive has all been backed up by the data and plenty of negative stuff in there for the Michigan haters so. <laughs> <laughs> there you go but uh, but Jim in 07 at Stanford I uh, did say he got in a lot of trouble in Ann Arbor in some ways, a lot of dust up, by saying, you know, Michigan does a good job, Stanford does a better job, Michigan should do it, should do it Stanford's way. And, of course, that was not well received in Ann Arbor at all. But when Michigan got to, um, sorry, when Harbaugh got to Michigan, what was not reported is every year when the APR, APR reports come out, the academic progress reports, uh, he always asked the academic guy, first question before opens the envelope, did Michigan beat Stanford? And every year for four years, they have. Michigan's been in the top three to the top six. So in a league with Air Force, uh, Northwestern schools like that. So uh, he's put his money where his mouth is. No one ever talks about that stuff. Uh, but that's been very impressive. And also, the, we mentioned about the book about when Scott Frost comes back to Nebraska. And that some schools, when it's like, you know, they t I need a Michigan man. And that is important. And Michigan went away from that with Rich Rodriguez and some of their hires. And that someone just defines a who they are, and that's what the university, what they want. And like I'm wondering when you're when I read your book, it's like if Bill Belichick said, I have I had a vision. I want to now coach college football, and I want to coach Michigan. Or if Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney decide decide they're going to coach Michigan, that there's the vast majority of Michigan fans would say, No, we don't. You're not a Michigan person. We want a Michigan guy coaching us. We want Jim Harbaugh to be our coach over Saban, over Sweeney. And I, I get that sense that that is, and that's great for the school to have that pride of a school and the fact that you have a coach like Harbaugh who's been so successful that wanted to come back to this, his alma mater and coach. Well, exactly. Of course, the Michigan man thing can be used as a hammer to beat up other guys who don't fit. Uh, but it's worth noting, of course, Bo Schimbeckler came from outside Ohio State, for crying out loud, of all the places. But he's an assistant coach there under Woody Hayes. Uh, but as a rule, though, back to Belichick, if he, like Bill Parcells, decided to quit the Patriots and coach for the arch-rival Jets, nobody would care. It's not a big deal. But obviously, Urban Meyer is not coming to Michigan, and Harbaugh is not going to Ohio State. It's just never done. It's not done. And it's amazing how often Scott Frost in Nebraska, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, uh, Pat Richter, the AD at Wisconsin, who got Barry Alvarez. These are all guys who went back to their alma maters to try to, try to save the program, and they basically did. And that does not happen to the pros. So that shows you how deep the passions run in college football. This book, we're talking to John Bacon, the author of Overtime, and something that you covered in this book, and I've read hundreds of football books, I don't think any book has ever broke down in terms of how the, the staff and what he's running, and from the video replay, and the fact that he actually brought in new, another nutritionist that does that analyzes the whole nutritionist team to analyze all the food the players are eating, and the strength and conditioning coach, and how on based upon recommendations from players, he, up, he changed that, and just all the people that are working in the program, but the idea 
idea is that they're all there as both set in place, which is they are there to win the Big Ten title. Like everybody's part of a team. And, and I like the fact that you really spent pages on that, describing the entire football program like this, this big company. I appreciate that. And that also hopefully proves the point, Ira. Yeah, it's obviously about Michigan, but it's not merely about Michigan. It's about college football. And I'm sure that program at Penn State, uh, you know, Ohio State weren't run about the same way, that you've got all these people behind the scenes. If you want an FBI book, you know, read an FBI book. This book is about college football and how it actually functions behind the scenes. Uh, they've got 67 full-time employees at Schimbeckler Hall. And their favorite question, is, like you said, nutritionists, strength coaches, uh, athletic trainers, recruiting directors, um, academic guys, you name it. They're all there. And their favorite question, of course, is, what do you guys do in the off-season? <laughs> yeah, and the answer is, we scale back our hours from 100 hours a week during the season to 50-hour a week during the off-season. There is no off-season. These jobs are brutal. And if you don't love being around college athletes, you'd never stay there. The money's not good enough for that. So that was kind of cool to see how the machine works. I also talked to eight, eight players, four on offense, four on defense, uh, some big names and some walk-ons, basically, to uh, find out what it actually means and feels like to be a college football player and talk to their parents as well. And that was quite enlightening. So fun to do. And, and you mentioned a lot about the quarterback in Michigan, is Shea Patterson, uh, a transfer from Mississippi. And, and the point is, is he is like Jim Harbaugh, it seems like, is looking for Jim Harbaugh as the quarterback. And is <laughs> Shea Patterson Jim Harbaugh? Is that the guy? And, and is he going to those big games, make those places? You, you mentioned in the book how he guaranteed before playing Ohio State, he made the guarantee that we're going to beat Ohio State. And they asked Bo about that. Are you upset? And he goes, well, at least I know I have one guy in the room that thinks he could beat Ohio State. <laughs> so is Patterson going to be the guy? Is he the Jim Harbaugh quarterback that's, that I, I think when Michigan, if they won the national championship, it would, I don't think any school would be more proud of like the coach and the team and everything about it, but is that the guy, or is he still going to be searching for that Jim Harbaugh quarterback? Uh, I think he might be the guy. Now, we're going to find out uh, coming this Saturday, of course, against Wisconsin. Uh, he was uh, injured his oblique muscles in the first play of the uh, first game, and might not have played in the second game, but he chose to, and he needs two weeks to recover, and that's what he's getting with the bye week. So, I'm going to find out what Shea's like at full force with uh, great receivers and a new offensive plan. So, uh, but what uh, Chase Winovich, now with the Patriots, said in the book, he said, I've been here four years. We've never had the guy. And now for the first time in four years, I feel like we got the guy, and that guy is Shea Patterson. So he's got the confidence of the team for sure. And that's what, that's what Jim had as well. I guess the question is, being the Penn State fan I am, and and – I, Ohio State somehow got a title out of this, but from a, from the Big Ten perspective, from from really schools like Penn State and Michigan, and, and you look at Alabama and Clemson and how elite they are, and then you then you see that maybe Georgia's cut, cut the gap a little bit, but it just seems like they're so much better. And, and and do you feel that? I mean, is that is it like is there ever how will Penn how will the Pennsies and Michigans who are elite compared to everybody else? I mean, but frankly, made that big statement: we're great, but we're not elite. Uh, that comment is how can they make that step to be able to beat the Clemson and, and the Clemson and Alabama? That's a great question. I'm sure that Franklin Harbaugh and others are working on that one right now. <laughs> uh, right now, in the Big Ten, there's one dominant team, and it's Ohio State, and that's that's been true for at least a decade. Um, and so far, Ryan Day is picking up where Urban Meyer's left off. It looks like so. Right now, the first job for Penn State and Michigan is to catch a program like Ohio State. I'd probably include a Michigan State in that same chase group. Uh, so you've got to beat those guys first, of course. Then after that, even Ohio State, they've won one national title in the modern era but uh, in the playoffs. But uh, it's not been easy for them either. So, 
part of it is geography, frankly, that uh, the money and the economy and the talent has mostly gone south. Uh, you cannot anymore build a national title team just with Midwestern players. You can with just players from Florida, for crying out loud. So that's one thing you got to do is recruit better in the south, obviously. Develop the kids you can develop in the Midwest. Uh, but the recruiting has got to be national. Uh, Alabama can recruit the south. So can Florida. That's all you really need. Uh, Michigan's got to get the south. So does Ohio State. At least five, five or so players a year, at least, from down there. So that's one thing right there. Uh, second thing is you just got to build it to last. Now, Urban Meyer, I think, did that at Ohio State, but uh, Michigan's not there yet. So what, what you got to do first, got to beat Ohio State and get to the dance. Get to the dance, you figure out what you're missing the next time. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, what, what's your opinion and the discussion about the California rule and how about the pay for play in terms of the California has now stated that it passed this year, this, this past week, about paying college football players, not paying them per se, but saying that they can profit on their likeness so they could uh, sign autographs and make money or they could just do an advertisement for a car company or a, anything like that? Uh, mixed feelings. Now, the last thing I want to do is defend the NCAA, and I'm not going to. So, <laughs> um, Mark Emmer's getting $2 million to run a nonprofit. I got an issue with that, as you might imagine. So, I think it's probably going to happen in some form, uh, probably sooner than later. California, more or less, has uh, called the NCAA's bluff, essentially. Um, I've got mixed feelings, though, not because I think the current system is the right way to go. It's a mess. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's the way to solve it. Uh, my theory is that until, even if you allow this to happen, what you're going to get now is the boosters are going to run college football because, unlike the Olympics, uh, they don't really care that much if you get a gold medal in cross-country skiing. Uh, they're not going to fund you unless they think you're going to sell cars, basically. In this case, they're going to fund you like crazy if you're going to win football games for your alma mater. So basically the booster floodgates are open, and that's not going to run fo college football. That will have pros and cons to it, obviously. And furthermore, you still have not solved the central problem why the players are powerless, because the NCAA controls all of football. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, in uh, baseball and hockey, you've had a viable minor league for more than 100 years. So if I'm a talented high school hockey or, basketball or baseball player, I don't have to go to college. If I want to get paid, if I don't want to be a student, I can go ahead and do that. And that's probably an easier path to the pros. I think college football and, baseball and basketball need the exact same options that baseball and hockey have always had. Until then, you're always going to be somewhat trapped, I think. Well, and then one last thing. We're talking to John Bacon, the author of Overtime, about the last years in Michigan football. Uh, and I, I love this quote. And, and, and the one thing is we talked about how Michigan is the emphasis on academics. The, you're, you're actually a professor at Michigan. One of my friends is in your class. He says you're the most popular uh, professor there, the longest wait list to try to get on your classes. So congratulations on that. Well, but, thank you. Uh, ben told me I'll be talking to you tonight. So, yes, Ben, ben, is, ben is on his game. So, so he hasn't flunked yet. How's that? But his quote was, it's when you actually, you said, wrote in the book that you flunked, you flunked uh, two Michigan players and did not hear from anybody in the staff that you flunked the players, not recent players, but you had flunked them, and that if you were at any other school, they'd probably have fired you by now. But your comment in the book was, uh, when Jim Harbaugh asked uh, Coach Hanlon about, what do you think this next year is going to be, and what do you, how do you think we're going to be, Jim Hanlon, who was the offensive line coach, said, Jim, come back to me in 20 years and I'll tell you. Only then will we know how you and your classmates turned out did you get good jobs are you hardworking and honest were you good husbands and fathers did you contribute to your community did you make the world a better place what an answer man it's wonderful and jim has translated that into these next four years are for your next 40 years in other words it's not about football it's about 
you're going to be when you leave this place. And look, I came from Penn State with the exact same feeling about the way Paterno and Bill O'Brien were running the program. I've got no idea about uh, James Franklin either way, so I'm not here to weigh in on that either way. But uh, that was my very strong impression of Penn State. Northwestern does it that way. I think Stanford, Notre Dame, there are a few schools in that category. And when you and it's not bold. When you go back to their reunions 20, 30 years later, look at these guys. They've been they've done incredibly well. Now not all of them, but the vast majority. And that's, that's I left this book feeling a lot better about college football than I did going into it. I can say that unequivocally. Well, John, thank and thank you for writing the book. I encourage everyone to read it. It is a tremendous book. I have a hundred more pages. I still want to be a Penn State fan. I hope this doesn't turn me in the final hundred pages. I'm nervous, but uh, I will definitely go back and read your Penn State book too again. But uh, thank you again Appreciate for that. maybe the Ohio State game will change your mind. There you go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, the Penn State Michigan game is uh, exciting. I mean, just tremendous. I mean, every time Penn State plays at Michigan, they get killed by a hundred points. But um, anyway, with <laughs> John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're very busy, and I appreciate you coming on Ira on Sports. Ira, my pleasure. Next time I'll have a better voice, I promise. Let's do it again. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you can learn more right now at johnubacon.com on Twitter at johnubacon. Purchase uh, all his books there. Get some more information. He's, uh, he's an excellent uh, excellent author and excellent person to talk to here on the radio, John Bacon. It's Ira on Sports, the true oldies channel. 737, I'm Mike Balsamo. Some breaking news, Ira, and this might have been um, expected. Jalen Ramsey is requesting a trade. I'm sure you saw the tirade he had on the sideline with Doug Marone. Um, I don't think Coughlin is very happy about that either. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Jalen Ramsey in a New Jersey by Wednesday. Um, we'll talk more football in, in just a minute. We still have so much to get to. But let's go to college football because you, once again, attended a Penn State game. They must – does, like, the security guards and stuff like that know you when you walk in, all the ushers? No, they don't. Well, actually, not really. But <laughs> I've never had a – I took my parents there, and it was – so this past week I took my parents to both games. And last week I saw the Steelers – I took my girlfriend. So mm-hmm. it was – it's fun just taking other people. Now next week I'll go to the Steelers-San Francisco game all by myself. So, But it, it's it, – I love I'm so passionate about sports and I love that my parents who are older and, and my my dad's took me to games when I was like four and five years old. Mm. So I think it's great that I can help him go to the games with my mom and they're just so into it. And there was a lightning delay, so we had to wait forty minutes underneath the stands and shelter in place. And then we get there the first quarter and it's pouring down rain and you're thinking, Oh my gosh, how long are we gonna have this rain? Yeah. But then by the halftime it the it's beautiful, blue sky, seventy degree weather. So the end game ended in perfect weather and it was a very hard game. This was the 100th game of Penn State and versus Pitt. Uh, the rivalry is very deep. I mean, it's like the Florida State, Miami, mm-hmm. all that type of rivalry. And the coaches themselves, and I've gone to some of the best games I've ever seen have been, because these players, Penn State and Pitt, a lot of them, uh, after the game, they're all, they knew each other. Everybody plays there on the same high school teams. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the Pittsburgh is the state university, uh, a state university in Pennsylvania, and Penn State is a state university too. So the same type of school and, and fans. But Frank Franklin, who's the coach of Penn State, and Narduzzi, the coach of Pitt, do not like each other at all. Last year, Franklin was running the score up 50 to nothing, and this is the the fourth game of a series they put in. They hadn't played for like a decade, played four games, and I don't think they're going to be playing another for maybe like 20 more years. So we'll have to see if they come back. But Penn State is definitely the, the better team now, the more well-known. They were favored by 17 points, but Pitt came in there and played tough. 
tell us about uh, the game itself, the atmosphere, because this is something that um, it was kind of a big deal, this game. 108,000 fans, national TV, tons of pit fans there. You have Tony Dorsett on the sidelines. Um, and Penn State got off to a, a quick start. Journey Brown, they have four running backs that are all four or five stars, and he ran the ball 80 yards. They put the uh, they get, put the score up, uh, made it 7 nothing. But then Pitt came back and scored a touchdown, a field goal, 10-7. And then Penn State, this guy, Jordan Stout. Penn's, everybody talks about having trouble with field goal kicking. Jordan Stout has got to play in the NFL. So he was on Virginia Tech's team, and they wouldn't give him a full scholarship. And I, he's the best kicker I've ever seen at Penn State. Mm-hmm. He came in there for a 57-yard field goal. 57 yards. And you, it was it's like— unheard of in college. <laughs> unheard of on a field. It's windy. It's raining. And he has this long dreadlock—not uh, uh, dreadlock hair, but the locked hair. He's blonde hair, mm-hmm. flowing, flowing hair. And just relaxed a couple little and just kicked it. And it could have been 65 yards. I mean, and in Virginia, the only reason he transferred to Penn State is Virginia Tech would not offer a scholarship. So I don't know what happened, but he tied it at 10 10. It was the longest field goal in the history of Beaver Stadium, the longest field goal in the history of Penn State. And even after he hit it, he wasn't like jumping up and down, like, oh, I hit this. It's like, I do this all the time. It was just what an amazing asset. I guarantee you he's going to be playing the NFL. Uh, but the, the story of the game was that Penn State went up 17 10 with five minutes to go in the game. Pitt drove down to the one-yard line and they had four plays they could three plays they could score and then on fourth down they tried for a field goal instead of going for a touchdown you're a 17 point underdog and they tried for a field goal and it got blocked and then Penn State came down and they went and Pitt actually had a chance near the end of the game to score again and then it was stopped but Narduzzi was like well we have to the coach of Pitt says we have to play for him to get two scores and one score but really if they scored a touchdown they would send it to overtime mm-hmm. and he goes I don't play for overtime and the <laughs> national media just blacked and Narduzzi, and Narduzzi was so defensive back back to them. And then he's like, I hate playing, I mean, everything about hate playing Penn State. He's mad at the media. So that became the issue is why he didn't go for the touchdown with five minutes to go in the game. Um, let's talk, let's keep it in college football. We'll try to go quickly here. There's really only a few teams in this that, can, that are even close to the top level talent or even you know close to, to winning a national championship and you want to talk about them now. Yeah, I, I think it's clear right now, and, and I'm not the first person to say it, there's six teams. Clemson it plays their toughest game of the year at Syracuse. They're a 20-point favorite, and they win 41-6. to Trevor Lawrence doesn't even have that great a game. Uh, their wide receivers are NFL quality. If you watch that game, he's throwing the ball, and they're just jumping up again. And mm. I don't know if Trevor Lawrence, I think he's great. He's going to be a great NFL quarterback, but they are just, Clemson's just an elite level. you've got an NFL receiver. Yeah, and they're yeah. going to be a, they're they're going to be twenty five to thirty point favorites the rest of the season. They play Charlotte this week. Uh, Alabama played South Carolina and Tua had maybe his best game ever twenty to thirty six four hundred forty four yards five touchdowns. Georgia destroyed Arkansas State and then LSU Northwestern State. So there's Bama, Georgia, and LSU in the SEC. Clemson in the ACC and then Oklahoma plays UCLA. They bring in they've had the two last two Heisman Trophy winners. Jalen Hurts transfers from Oklahoma from Alabama. People question is he going to start? How's he going to do uh, he it was Lincoln Riley is uh, he takes good quarterbacks and makes them ridiculously great quarterbacks. He had 15 for 20 for 28 yards. He rushed for 150 yards. He was he it looked like he was out there by himself against UCLA. Now UCLA has 
pro- their own problems. They're a disaster. But Oklahoma is just blowing everyone out. And then Ohio State beat Indiana 51-10. So you have those six teams. And then what's exciting about this weekend is that Notre Dame is on the fringes, number seven. They actually are playing at Georgia. And that is going to be a humongous game. It's uh, the first game in, uh, in Athens, first non-conference matchup between two top ten teams in 53 years. So this weekend, at uh, it's going to be 8 o'clock CBS game. Notre Dame at Georgia is going to be a big game. It's one of the few times these elite sixes, I call them, are going to be playing any type of quality teams. We talk about it every week on this show, that there's really only one matchup every week to watch, and that's surely it this week. 744, I run Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. I had a friend in town who's a uh, Gator alumni from the University of Florida. This team just doesn't make anything look good. I mean, they... Even when they win, it looks like they're they're struggling, and and I I wouldn't be so happy about a win over a Kentucky team by eight points. Well, they were you should be happy because they were down twenty one ten, and Felipe Franks, their quarterback, gets injured, mm-hmm. and and and. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a quarterback like in pain, and the team was, they rallied around him. And Kyle Trask came in and led them to a victory over Kentucky, and, and that was is a good win. But Florida is a, a ninth-ranked team. Does, it's just struggling all the time. Uh, but that was, look, it's a win they have to do. They're going to eventually have to play Georgia, and that'll mm-hmm. be the, the, the defining moment. I, I assume they'll be a two-touchdown underdog when they play Georgia, especially if Georgia uh, wins this week. But uh, they're hanging in there. <laughs> UCF is going in the other direction, and this team is just—they're fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, they played Stanford, and people are like, oh, Stanford's a good team, but they have this name. But Stanford hasn't played well this year. But UCF, they beat Stanford 45-17. They, again, Scott Frost left. He's now two years removed from the program. They're still winning games, and they look like a team that, again, is going to be in that that big six in terms of, like, one of the major bowl games because they take the non-Power 5 conference. And UCF is this elite program. And you're just wondering when UCF somehow gets invited to one of the Power 5 conferences. They're drawing fans to their stadium. They're in Orlando, which is a major TV Mm -hmm. market. And it just, I think they're going to, somebody is going to ask them to be, I mean, ACC, I mean, UCF right now would be the second best team easily in the ACC. Without a doubt. And they're in Orlando. So I'm wondering, like, in the SEC, why wouldn't they take them either? So I think I think UCF, I would not be surprised. I'm telling you, next two, three years, they get invited to one of these conferences. I, I want to see it happen, and I don't know what's taking this long. Yeah, you can't tell me that the SEC wouldn't be fine without Vanderbilt or, or Ole Miss. You know what I mean? And the ACC has half a dozen teams that, that UCF would roll over any given any given Saturday. Um, Big Ten didn't have a good Saturday. Um, no. Luckily, Penn State won, and Iowa beat Iowa State by one. But Temple, Maryland was a team that people were getting excited about, but they lost to Temple 2017. Eastern Michigan beat Illinois 34-31, and Purdue lost to TCU 34-13. So, and then Michigan State at home lost to Arizona State uh, and Herb Edwards' team. And so Michigan State was one of the, the teams that people thought were going to be an elite team this year. Goes down. So again, and, and we talk about this, the, the, the Big Ten needs these teams. I mean, for Ohio State's purposes, they want the Big Ten to be strong because when they beat these teams, they want to beat teams that are undefeated. That's the problem. Now Alabama is going to play a Georgia and the LSU. And as long as these teams look like they're great, then it's going to be enough credit for those teams to, for them to get in the, the playoff for the f- top four. I ran my entire life. I don't think I've seen the ACC be this bad. Well, when Can- when um, Kansas had a 48-game losing streak uh, <laughs> against Big Five teams on the road, I mean, how many? That's like decades. And Les Miles comes in; they beat Boston College. Uh, West Virginia beat NC State 44-27. And Citadel, which is one of the worst teams in America, that lost to Elon and Towson. 
they come and they beat Georgia Tech <laughs> at Georgia Tech. I mean, for Georgia Tech to lose against Citadel when they were like, and again, like 30-point favorites, uh, it's just a, a disaster. Uh, the ACC, and that's what Clemson, but Clemson is so good that they're going to still get it in. I, I think there'll be a question, though. If Clemson runs the table and is undefeated, and Alabama runs the table and is undefeated and beats the LSUs, whether Clemson, it doesn't really matter if they're one or two seeds, but I wonder if they would make the SEC undefeated above, because right now Clemson is one, but make them the number one team in the country. I, I could see that happening, and it's <laughs> Towson's like one double A. I don't even know if they're a, a full A school. Um, what do we have coming up this week in college football? What the Notre Dame Georgia game at eight o'clock. Utah at USC on Friday night is going to be a very uh, exciting game because Utah is like uh, ranked number eleven. They're sneakily very good, and USC at home uh, at night on Friday night. They they might that might be a great game. Michigan Wisconsin twelve o'clock ABC. John Bacon just mentioned that that game. Uh, both teams undefeated. A big game. I mean, this is almost an elimination game. This for these two teams this early in the season, and then at night uh, during the afternoon, Auburn at Texas A and M at three thirty should be another good game. But uh, so many bad games on the. But as long as there's like every three and a half hours. Every, there's, a, there's a section of a good game that it's worth it. You can watch football all day. 748, Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk baseball for a little bit. And bad news, um, if you're an Angels fan or a baseball fan in general, Mike Trout's season is over. He's going to have a, a small surgery that's going to take him out for the rest of the season. Not that they were going to make the playoffs anyways, but what's going on in baseball? I... Well, just generally right now is that the uh, what's exciting is that the Brewers, who after Christian Yelich's uh, fouls the ball off his kneecap. Uh, you're thinking the Brewers are done. They're yeah. finished. They've now won nine out of ten. Uh, they're one game behind the Cubs. And if you look at what they have left, San Diego, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Colorado, 13 games, they might make it. I, I, and the Mets, uh, the Dodgers came in there, took two out of three. They're four back for that wild card spot. But it, it's between the Nationals, the Cubs, and the Brewers. They're all battling for that wild part, that last wild card spot. And then the A's, the Rays, and Indians uh, are doing the same. In, in the and the A's are hot. And the A's are beating everyone, and and, they're, and it looks like the A's are one and a half over the Rays, and the Rays one half over the Indians. And with KC, Texas, Angels, Seattle, A's look like they have the easiest uh, path to get to the wild card. And then, of course, we're talking about how the, the Astros, the Yankees, and the Dodgers are the top seed because both teams are so they play so well at home mm-hmm. and especially the Dodgers they need to get that top seed in the World Series uh, to, to have the have the number one to have home field in the World Series and there and uh, the Astros and Yankees are tied with and the Dodgers are one game back uh, one interesting point is the Pirates they're horrendous <laughs> and uh, they gave up in three games to the Cubs 178 14 16 to 6 uh, their ERA is 524 which is is now the worst ever for the Pirates they passed the 1930 team and their two pitchers got in a fight and you're like well who got suspended no they fought each other in their own <laughs> locker room and one pitcher Vasquez uh, hurt Crick so he had to have season ending surgery um, the Pirates are in complete disarray so if you're playing the Pirates it's an easy victory yeah they actually shut down Chris Archer today um, he's got his worst ERA of his career um, this season, and he will not pitch again. Let's go back to football. Um, I knew this was going to be a good game, and it, it was. It was a the, the night game yesterday was one I was definitely looking forward to. It was Falcons versus Eagles, and it was a, a lot of back and forth, a little bit of sloppiness, but either way, it was a good game. It was a good game. I, Carson Wentz, their offensive line. Now, 
it seems like he was in, first of all, everybody, Alshon Jeffries, Deshaun Jackson, they were in the tent. They got hurt. Uh, Wentz seemed to be going into that. They have that that tent that goes in when they get injured. Every, he was getting injured almost on every tackle, uh, the, every pass he was going to play. Um, and it, it was it was a messy game. But the uh, Falcons had dominated the games, but the Eagles came back and took the lead at 2017. And then they threw a screen pass at the end of the game, a 54-yard screen pass to Julio Jones. And they said he was running 20 miles an hour. And he just flew down the field. And they took the lead. And then the Eagles had their chance at the end of the game. And Aguilar dropped a touchdown ball, but then he made a great catch. But then at 4th and 14 on the 40-yard line, 4th uh, and 8, they went to Wentz for uh, 7 yards, and they were stopped at the, mm-hmm. at the with one yard to spare. So the Falcons ended up winning the game. But it was that... I, I, Calvin Ridley and uh, Julio Jones are... It's Ryan, that, I think with all these injuries, if Matt Ryan can stay healthy and this team can get itself going again, we're concerned about the Falcons. This was a sort of a must-win for them, and they, they're they looking like they're a team that could make the playoffs if they continue to play that well. I agree this was a must-win. I mean, you, you got embarrassed last week. You're, you're coming home. How good does Calvin Ridley look? I was a little skeptical on him. There's been a long line of very, very good Alabama wide receivers. He's a little undersized, didn't really have the sample set that, you know, you saw from a Julio or an Amare, but he has the potential to be, he reminds me of Antonio Brown a little bit in the way he plays as an undersized guy. He had a great day yesterday. Well, it's it's funny. Cleveland, we're going to see tonight Cleveland play the Jets. Jarvis Langley and Odell Beckham, both LSU receivers. Here you're having two Alabama receivers. And, <laughs> yeah, and cool. I think when you have a star receiver like Jones, I think it's better to have like his friend on the team. Like These guys, they know each other. They get along. I think you can, I think it helps. I think you're going to start seeing all these wide receivers. Like maybe Tampa Bay has Godwin, maybe another Penn State wide receiver on the team. Like like teams are going to just say, we got to have two of the college wide receivers on there. But they seem to work well together, and it was a big win. It was And, and I, if I'm I'm a Philadelphia Eagle fan. I'm nervous about Carson Wentz because he was getting hit hard, and he doesn't just bounce up like some of these other quarterbacks. Yeah. And he's injured, and he's been—he's now last two seasons have been cut down by injury, and I just don't know if he's going to last the whole season. Patriots and Dolphins, and this probably the most—I dis- thought last week's Ravens game was the most disgusting game I'd ever seen up until this week's Patriots Dolphins game. It was awful, Ira. Well, I said, I told everyone, I loved even the line. I thought the line should have been 30. I mean, they ended up winning 43 nothing. And because I, Bill Belichick, he doesn't take it easy. It's not like sentimental. He does not care. Brian Flores was his assistant for 15 years, yeah. but he's like, I don't care. You're not on my team. We're gonna and Brady's still throwing the ball at the end of the game. Well, that's what shocked me. They're up 33 nothing. With six minutes left, and Brady's in there throwing still. They are very lucky that a uh, defensive end or someone didn't slip slip a, a blocker because I would have been looking to really hurt Brady. There's just no reason for him to be in that game. But it wasn't surprising that he went to Antonio Brown to start the game. And that's like he has when Randy Moss, I remember the first game, right? He Brady knows they ran the plays for Antonio Brown. He had four catches for 56 yards and a touchdown, and they wanted to get him involved early. And it wasn't going to be something where, and now he didn't go to him. There's so many wide receivers they have and so many choices, so many options. But on the touchdown pass that people said that maybe it was a little offensive interference, but you can see, but you can see also Brown's ability to get separation and, and there's been stats I looked at. He's not getting as much separation as he has, but maybe he wasn't trying as hard, but if he can just get a little separation, Brady's as much as I like Ben, I think Brian's great. Brady's better and Brady's much more accurate. And if, as long as Antonio gets that separation, Brady's going to get him the ball and he has great hands. And that touchdown was the perfect play. They could run that in the red zone. Every single time. And that's in the, in the red zone, the, 
with, with, with Edelman's been their wide receiver and they really haven't had that Randy Moss factor. They've had problems with Gronkowski's been like the only option to throw to when they get down to the 20 and 10 yard lines to throw in the end zone. And maybe do they do screens to wide receivers. But if Antonio can make plays like that, that's what's going to help them. It's getting touchdowns instead of field goals. Uh, it, it seemed like they came out, that was Belichick, just masterful work, came out through all routes that Antonio Brown runs and he ran them perfectly. And they got a touchdown off it. They went to him, what, f- the first five passes, four of them, right to him. It, it was uh, it was impressive. It was a display. I, I got to feel bad if you're Brian Flores, just the, the disaster that he's uh, dealing with right now. I knew it would be where it was supposed to be one of the games of the week. And I had a feeling that the Rams would beat New Orleans. I just thought that they're a better team. And they were a better team, even before and after the injury to Drew Brees, who, like we said, is going to miss a couple of months here. Well, Brees... Luckily for the New Orleans, he's only out uh, six, seven weeks with his thumb. I mean, you saw him try to pick up the ball, and it, it, it didn't work. Now, they're excited because they have Teddy Bridgewater, who was the highest-paid backup. Um, a lot of people think Taysom Hill should be playing instead of Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback. But he didn't look very good. Uh, but it was, it, again, a messy game. It was a game. <laughs> the Rams the Rams win 27-9. to uh, I think it was just a game where, with Breeze getting hurt, they were sort of discombobulated, didn't know what to do. And, and this team is more dependent, as much as the Steelers are dependent on Ben, the, the, the Saints are totally dependent on Breeze and his ability to, to get them in the second and fives and the third and twos and just run that offense. And they have so many weapons and the Kamaras and the Michael Thomas. And then when he's out of the game, nothing happens. Uh, I don't know if New Orleans, everyone thinks that they're going to be able to go four and four with uh, with that without Breeze, but they might. They're, they could be two and six. This is this is very. They might. They probably will not. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I would 100% say they don't make the playoffs now. Like you said, I, I can't see. Teddy Bridgewater just didn't look very comfortable. I know you got thrust in there, so I'll give him another week, but he didn't look like what you thought Teddy Bridgewater, at least in my opinion, was going to do to start that game, uh, to come into a place in that game. It's 7.56, Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Ira, this game was a little ugly. And it, it, it's another game where I don't want to say that the Cowboys are really good yet, but Dak, once again, looked really good, and they are 2-0. I like Dallas. I think they're I think they're gearing up. I mean, when yeah. you're looking at how the the Saints don't look that good. The Saints are prize hit aren't gonna make the playoffs. The Rams don't look that good. And then you and then you have the Eagles having their struggles. You're trying to pick a team in the NFC who's gonna go to the Super Bowl. And I always joked. I mean, if Dallas makes the Super Bowl, you talk about ticket prices. If Dallas is going to be the most expensive Super Bowl of all time, they haven't been in the Super Bowl forever. They make the Super Bowl. It'll be in Miami, of course, this year. Uh, but they're looking, and, and now everybody knows a Cowboy fan. I mean, they're everywhere, mm. and they're getting excited. And Dak looks great: 269 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, uh, Elliott had had you know, had a very good, much better game than he had last time. Uh, Dak had 26 completions to eight different wide receivers. So he's able to work the ball. And again, they played a poor Redskins team, uh, but still a very good win for the Cowboys and uh, and something that I think they're you know they're they're set. Uh, they and who do they play next week? The Dolphins, twenty-one yeah. point favorites. <laughs> so I mean, it's like you look at the Dolphins; it's like a bye week on your schedule. Well, I, I knew going into the season, opening up Giants, Redskins, Dolphins, they had a very good chance to be three and zero. And if the Dolphins win next week, I I, I will quit my job. Um, 
Patrick Mahomes, I don't, I don't, this guy is just ridiculous. Every week, week in and week out, just put him up for 350 yards and four scores. Well, he loses his best wide receiver in, in Tyree Hill, and uh, but still 30 for 44, 483 yards, four touchdowns. He did not have there were no points in the first in the first quarter against the Raiders, and then he throws for four touchdowns in the second quarter. Uh, the Raiders, they didn't look. I, I saw parts of that game. They didn't look. They didn't look bad, but they didn't look that good. But I like Jacob. The fact that Jacobs is getting involved, the running back, Josh Jacobs. He looks good. And I think that has going to help them out. He had 12 carries for 99 yards. Of course, I missed him. Uh, but uh, Demarcus Robinson, six catches, 172 yards, two touchdowns. It seems like anybody they put in there at wide receiver uh, that he's going to find. He's His ability, he moves around the pocket. I mean, now he's getting acclaimed as the best quarterback in the league. I mean, for a while, I still think, of course, Brady's the best quarterback. Brady wins. Brady wins Super Bowls. That's who is the best quarterback. But if you're going to take Brady out of the picture, uh, people had Aaron Rodgers. But I think Mahomes is now past that. I think people are saying he is the best player's MVP last year. Yeah. But I think now he has got that title as being the number one quarterback. I always have – there's two different – there's the best thrower in the league and there's the best quarterback in the league. He's clearly the best thrower. Quarterback, you have to be more cerebral. And can you win playoff games in January in Foxborough? That'll be who's the best quarterback. But there's nobody slinging the rock like Patrick Mahomes is right now. Jimmy G looked uh, pretty good in San Francisco. Cincinnati, not really a team that I'm worried about, though. But you're finally seeing in San Francisco and the Steelers. I'll they see play the, defense. And I'm going to be there next week. And I'm nervous. I think I see the Steelers, the probability. I don't see the line, but the probability was like 15 or 20% um, that they're going to play now. Uh, but they finally have their quarterback and the breeder running. And this is the Kyle Shanahan offense that he ran when he was at Atlanta. And mm-hmm. it's it, it's difficult. And they score. And I, I, they look like they're coming. And they look, they've had injuries. Now, again, they have injuries to the running back game that they brought with, they've had two of their best running backs are out. So they just have Matt Breida at running back. But San Francisco looks like a team, and they actually practiced this past week. I like when the teams are playing two games in the eastern side. So they, they practiced this past week in Youngstown and stayed there because there are other owners from cool. Youngstown. So, but uh, I'm excited. I've never, it's one of the few I've been to 24 stadiums. So it's one of the stadiums I haven't been to. So I get to see the 49ers play next week. Um, Ira, Last thing we'll talk about in football because we got to move on. Lamar Jackson once again looks really good, and it happened to be against the arguably two worst teams in the league. But at some point, if this guy keeps it up, he looks like a superstar. Well, he's from Papano Beach in Florida, yeah. and people forget he went to Louisville. He won the Heisman Trophy over Deshaun Watson, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he uh, he beat Florida State when he was there. That uh, number two for uh, number they were number two team on national television, and they ended up being number three in the country. They lost Clemson in a, in a tremendous game, but then the next year. In like 2017, people forgot about him. But his stats, I mean, he completed 60% of his passes, 3,600 yards, 27 touchdowns. But because his team wasn't as good, uh, they had lost all their players. Uh, he didn't, the people sort of lost to Lamar Jackson. And he's drafted at the end of the first round. People thought the, the Ravens reached when they, when they got him. But uh, and remember, in that draft was Sam Darnell, Josh Rosen, Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, all these other quarterbacks. And Lamar Jackson yeah, was sort fifth. of. And right now, uh, I will see how Mayfield does tonight. But if Mayfield doesn't have a great game tonight, you're going to say Lamar Jackson. He's now 
his, his stats are ridiculous. He has an 85% completion percentage on the year, <laughs> and he's like the leading rusher in the NFL. So he's running. You're like, well, how can he run? But he doesn't look like he's getting hit. So he's running, and he's passing, and he's he's like Russell Wilson even better. And and uh, and his accuracy is tremendous. And, he, and he's finding Mark Andrews, the, their tight end. He has eight catches for 112 yards and a touchdown. And people said, well, they don't have a long ball, but then Hollywood Brown uh, comes in, has eight catches for 86 yards. I mean, I misread this team. Everybody has. I knew I, they'd play defense. I didn't expect this. <laughs> I did not expect this offense at all. And and Arizona look Arizona look good. I mean, Kyler Murray is he's a rookie and he had 349 yards, uh, but it only carried the ball three times. So he's not running as much. He wants to mm-hmm. be a passer. But I'm sort of if I'm an Arizona fan, look, you're not going to go to the playoffs, but you might have found your quarterback. And he's I don't think Kyler Murray is going to be a bust. Uh, this is the first pick of the draft. Um, let's uh, let's change it up. Move on to the NBA and with basketball in general. You predicted that the Americans were gonna struggle at the FIBA World Championships, and you were exactly right. I I might be the only one. I, it's not funny is that we talk about NBA forever, and everyone yells at me that I talk too much about the NBA. They play in this World Championships, and nobody talks about it. It's and, not covered at all. I couldn't find it. ESPN. They showed the one game on TV, but didn't show any other. I'm watching on ESPN Plus, and I'm like, well, this is like a big game, and the World Championships are like, and uh, I don't know why. I don't know why, but they look terrible, and and I think Greg Popovich should be happy. He co a horrendous game. Horrendous. Donovan Mitchell of Utah. I watched it because I'm the biggest NBA fan in the world. And I, he scored 29 points in three quarters from Utah. Mm-hmm. And then he sits the fourth quarter. And they're playing They're playing France. And France had Rudy Gobert. And France, they came back, got this lead. And they just, the lead's evaporating. France is taking the lead. And Mitchell is still sitting on the bench. So he's the only player out there that's scoring. The only one. And he waits till like three minutes to go in the game to put him back in. And they end up losing. Uh, the only thing I'd be happy when I take a read from that game was Rudy Gobert of the Jazz had 21 points. 16 rebounds looked tremendous yeah. has an offensive game defense. and you have and I keep telling everybody about next year I know we're not coming back to the NBA but Utah is the seventh favorite to go to win the NBA title I they are they have Mitchell they have Gobert they have Mike Conley they have Bajanovic who was traded from the Pacers who looked tremendous in the in the in the world championships uh, I think Utah could be the second or third favorite to win it they're 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 better than the Lakers and the Clippers. They're very good. But people can sleep on Utah all they want. But uh, it was – Popovich did a bad job. I, nobody wants to play in this tournament from the, to play. So you didn't have the Hardens and push it down to LeBrons. But it'll be, it'll be very intriguing to see what happens in the Olympics next year if these players now decide to play in the Olympics because now they've sat out of playing in this tournament. Uh, and I think it, it reflects poorly on the NBA that some of these players – this was an opportunity for them to advertise their brand in China. And I was surprised that so many of them decided not to. But I wasn't surprised about the result because when you look on the court, it wasn't like they had the best players. No, they totally – you think the NBA would ever go to some kind of – um, thing or like mandate where they make some of these players go? No, I, I think the teams don't want to. The only other takeaway from this is that four uh, Boston Celtics played on the team out of 12. Um, and I think that was probably good to give cohesion because you have Kemba Walker who joined the team with Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart. So going into next year, I think that's going to help uh, next year starting. I mean, it's compl- they're mm-hmm. starting in October, mid-October. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it, it should help the Celtics. What's going on with Kevin Durant? Well, all I'm going to say is that he finally talked in a Wall Street Journal piece. He blasted Oklahoma City, said that the fans were mean to him, which is true. And then he sort of said, I had no interest in Golden State at all. I knew I was leaving. I knew I was out. And everything that people were sort of saying about what his situation was, it's a good read about the Wall Street Journal. We have more time next week. We'll maybe talk about it more. Uh, but he just – he. Um, 
it, it gives more insight into his decision on leaving. But he did not, as much as we looked at that side and said he doesn't seem happy at Golden State, he said, I wasn't really happy at Golden State. <laughs> <laughs> and he's becoming more of like a weirdo to me, too. Now, I don't, I don't know what uh, what his deal is. So before we wrap this up, uh, our producer, Mike Scooter Marone, wanted me to ask you about this. It, it's, it's trending all over social media. Sports Nation's picked this up. You don't follow Pokemon. I, I would assume, right, Ira? No. <laughs> the protagonist from Pokemon, his name is Ash. He won the Pokemon League for the first time in 20 years. This is all the buzz on the internet. Does that so. mean that the Jets might beat the, the Cleveland Browns? <laughs> so Monday Night Football is coming up here. And this is a, this Cleveland game, as much as the Pokemon, this Cleveland game, this is important because Cleveland's been running their mouth now. It seems like it seems like for years, but only been like the last few months. But I expect a huge game from Odo Beckham Jr. and Baker Mayfield on national television. And I'm excited to see this and I, I don't think the Jets will be, I mean this could be a complete blowout but if they lose this game uh, this is going to look this is going to this this is a big game for the Brown this is when I, you talk about a must win this is a must because they, they this is a must win for the Browns this is the biggest put up or shut up game I've ever seen in the NFL they're going to have more must wins if they win this they're going to have more West wins but if they lose this then people are going to say the Browns are all the same old Browns and uh, the Jet fans are going to be excited but it's so funny the Jet these are two fan bases I guess the Eagles you put in there that also like they're sort of obnoxious to some extent mm-hmm. so the Jets and the Browns and they're playing each other but the Browns better win tonight. I very, very rarely root for the Jets. Tonight, I'm rooting for <laughs> the Jets. Ira, where are you headed this week? Uh, no, Penn State's off, so I'm going to see the Steelers at San Francisco and then maybe catch a Dodger game also. We are out of time. Thank you so much to John Bacon for stopping by. It's been a great show. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.